you're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. Hey, what's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater, San Diego, filling in for Buck again today. Thanks for being here. Uh, so we're going to talk about, in this hour, Biden's uh, press conference, I guess. We have plenty of descriptors coming up in a minute here. We'll talk about that. Got some stuff about the uh, the border that he lied about. I don't know. He said we didn't. We haven't changed any policy with the border. You're like, oh, except for these two massive policy changes that we will detail here in just a minute. First, Express VPN. When you go on the interwebs, you're listen. You're the product. We know this. I remember the first time I heard this years ago, and it just clicked. And I know it's clicked for you that when something's free. You're not the client. You're the product. They're selling you. Well, how do they sell you? Well, they got to follow you. They got to track you. And that's what happens when you go on the internet. Everything you do, constantly. we've all been there before. Listen, we've all this. You're having a conversation with someone and you bring up like know, grills or something. You haven't even Googled grills. And all of a sudden you go to the internet and all these ads about grills coming up. You're like, how do they know? Who has your search history? Who knows your viewing habits? What do they do with that information? ExpressVPN, you don't have to worry about any of that anymore. These companies, they can't see your IP address now. Not with ExpressVPN. That's what it's about. It's a piece of cake to use too. ExpressVPN.com slash buck. ExpressVPN.com slash buck for three extra months free. And you can stop handing over your data to big tech, big tech, con, uh, big tech companies and to the government expressvpn.com slash buck right now to learn more. What's going on team buck? Mike Slater here in San Diego, filling in for the great buck Sexton. Thanks for being here. Well, uh, we have uh, TV shows together, buck and I on the same network on the first and you can follow me on mikeslater.locals.com. We put everything we do on my local show up there and we'll do everything we do here as well. mikeslater.locals.com. So Biden's press conference yesterday went just about how you expect it to go. This is not normal, what you're about to hear. It's not normal, and it's not good. Clip one. So the best way to get something done, if you, if it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to... Anyway. I, I, we're going to get a lot done. And if we have to, if there's complete... Lockdown and chaos is a consequence of the filibuster. Then we'll have to go beyond what I'm talking about. Okay, um, hang on. Uh, sorry. Oh, Sangman, Miss Kim. So just so you know, you are not allowed to ask any questions about the president's mental health. You're not allowed to ask any question. How dare you ask any questions about the president's cognitive ability, dementia, et cetera, et cetera. So here's how this is going to work. Right now, it's only fringe, far-right activists who are asking these questions. And then soon, it'll be more mainstream conservatives who are going to be asking these questions. And then, uh, oh, but as that's happening, by the way, the, the left and the media will rip these people to shreds. How dare you say anything about the president's mental health? How dare you question his health? You're emboldening the nation's enemies by suggesting he's not well and unfit. How dare you? That's so unpatriotic. You're going to hear the whole thing. And then more moderate conservatives are going to start asking these questions. And then far left activists are going to outflank, the, right, come around on the other flank to attack the president and his mental health. And the media is going to do the best they can to hold this off for as long as they can. And then one day... Something will happen 
and it will be absolutely undeniable. And the Democrats who are really running the show will throw old Joe out to pasture so fast. His key card to the Oval Office, it just won't work one day. Have you ever been fired or, you know, somebody's been fired and no one told them? And you got your key card to get back in the building and they just, it just doesn't work? That, that's going to be Joe in the Oval Office. No, one even, no one's even going to tell him. And one day, maybe, maybe he'll sneak in one day and Kamala will be sitting behind the desk. I don't know. But Kamala is going to be president and Joe is going to be thrown out to pasture and thrown down the memory hole like it never even happened. So that's how it's going to go. I don't know the timing, but it's going to be far right conspiracy theory, far right hit job and just nothing, 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 nothing. And then boom, gone overnight. And Kamala will fit right in. Here's Chris Wallace. Yeah, I uh, and and I have to say I was also struck uh, by the fact that it seemed on every foreign policy question, not the others, but on foreign policy, he went to his briefing book like Jen Psaki does uh, sometimes in the briefings and was reading, uh, obviously, White House guidance, White House talking points uh, covering Ronald Reagan for six years. I never saw that uh, watching a lot of news conferences over the years. I've never seen that a president in a news conference reading talking points he did that on it seemed every foreign policy so here's an example of that uh strike just striking fear in the hearts of our enemies and you can't tell on the radio but he never looks up from his paper not one time does he look up from his paper here here it is overnight we learned that north korea tested two ballistic missiles what if any actions will you take and what is your red line on north korea let me say that uh number one uh un resolution 1718 was violated by those particular missiles that were tested from the paper we're consoling with our allies and partners and uh there will be uh, responses if they choose to escalate. Um, we will respond accordingly. But I'm also prepared uh, um, for some form of diplomacy, um, but it has to be conditioned upon the end result of denuclearization. So uh, um, that's what we're doing right now, consulting with our allies. Like, what is that? Like, can you believe that? That's, that's, the, that's the commander-in-chief right there. Ronnie Jackson, who is a Republican, he's a congressman. I think he's a congressman or running for congressman. I think he's a congressman from Texas. He was a, a Navy rear admiral, and he was the White House physician from 2013 throughout Obama's term until 2018 under Trump. So he was the, the White House physician. And he said after the press conference, he said, this press brief was embarrassing. Could you imagine what the press would have done if Donald Trump had pulled something like this? Shameful and embarrassing. And it's hard to talk about here because if you do, you immediately will be called out as being partisan and you're so mean and how dare you. And that's fine. I don't care. It's just a matter of time. Just a matter of time. He's 78. You think he's going to last till he's 82? Maybe <laughs> like he won't, but it really just depends. It's all about the media. It depends about the media. How, how much can his people hide him? How much can his people hide him and how much and how long will the media cover for him? That's the question. Woodrow Wilson, Woodrow Wilson 
This was uh, 1920. So he just spent 1919 negotiating the Treaty of Versailles, the end of World War I. Spent six months doing that. Then he was on this like barn-burning tour to try to get support for the League of Nations. So he traveled by train, and he spoke train station to train station to train station all across the country. This was in 1920. And in between one of his speeches, he got this splitting headache, and his face started to twitch. And his doctor, his chief of staff and everyone on board, uh, you know, it was obvious that he had a stroke. So they called the whole rest of the thing off. They went right back to D.C. as quickly as they could. And his doctor and chief of staff, they kept him in bed away from everybody. He was paralyzed on his left side. He couldn't see out of one of his eyes. He was still president. And they kept him there for a year. No one saw him except for his wife, doctor, and chief of staff. That's it. They pulled this off for a year. Now, this is 1920. Can that same thing be pulled off in 2021? I don't know. But the media covered for Woodrow Wilson, just like the media is covering today. There was one reporter in particular. His name was Louis Seibold, S-E-I-B-O-L-D, Louis Seibold. And he was the reporter at the New York World. And he wrote this article. The headline is, Correspondent in th- this is the like 1920s voice. Correspondent in three-hour visit finds president's mental vigor unimpaired. Right, same thing with the Washington Post people today. Be like, oh, what a press conference! Wow, that was amazing. He was quick and witty and on it and high energy. You're like, what are you talking about? Executive gains 20 pounds in two months, and he does more work now than before confinement. That was the article. During the three hours, this is Woodrow Wilson, during the three hours I spent with the president, I saw him transact the important functions of his office with his old-time decisiveness, method, and keenness of intellectual appraisement. The correspondent, the reporter, I, heard him dictate his decisions on matters of great governmental importance with with a facility of expression and directness of meaning that indicated no impairment of the efficient mental machine that is known only the hardest kind of work for 40 years. And this is where it goes over the top. It was the same angular face, quite as full in cheek and not the least sunken at the temples. It was the same face registered in a mental picture eight months before. They were unmistakably the Wilson eyes, keen, searching, and snappily intelligent. Okay? The whole article's like that. All of it was made up. Every single word of it was made up. They never met. Woodrow Wilson could not walk. Again, his entire left side was paralyzed. His attention span was about 60 seconds. He was not having hours of conversation. Did not happen. He couldn't sign anything properly. He couldn't move properly. He couldn't do anything. This interview was a total fake. Never happened. Wilson's, uh, Woodrow Wilson's uh, chief of staff made up all the answers. And here's the kicker. Louis Seibold, the writer of that article won a Pulitzer Prize for it. This wasn't just one, some hack article. And this isn't just a guy who won the Pulitzer Prize. He won a Pulitzer Prize for that. Totally made-up story, protecting Woodrow Wilson for a year as he was paralyzed and in bed. So it's been done before. Every reporter today covering Biden will try to pull a Lewis Seibold 
And as they're doing it, they, they're going to know it's wrong, but they're going to keep doing it. And what's going to motivate them is they think they're going to win a Pulitzer because of it. And who knows? These days, they're probably right. Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton. MikeSlater.locals.com. Spread the word. Hey, what's up, Team Buck? Mike Slater, San Diego, filling in for Buck Sexton. MikeSlater.locals.com. That's my website, MikeSlater.locals.com. Everything's up there. So Biden, in the press conference uh, yesterday, he said, we're sending back the vast majority of families that are coming. Vast majority. What does vast majority mean to you? It's not just majority. So majority means 50%. Um, so vast majority. That to me means 78% or more. <laughs> that's, my, that's my number for 80%. Is that vast majority maybe? Maybe I'll give you a 65. Someone says 65% or more. Maybe that's fine. Uh, 13%. In Biden world, that is vast majority. 13%. Axios came back and reported that. Uh, here is the president on uh, the detention centers. I realize it's much more heart-wrenching, and it is, to deal with a five and six and seven-year-old. But you went down there and you saw the vast majority of these children, 70% are 16 years old, 17 years old, and mostly males. Doesn't make it, doesn't make it good, bad, or indifferent, but the idea that we have tens of thousands of kids in these god-awful facilities that are really little babies crying all night. There's some, that's true. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that is obviously off script. The last segment we talked about him reading off papers, that was not read off a paper. I'm sure his people were not happy about him admitting that they're god-awful facilities. Barack Obama and Joe Biden built the original cages. Trump got rid of the cages. He got rid of the need for cages. And Biden brought them back. Biden said in the presser that nothing has changed regarding border policy and that a surge happens every single solitary year. Those are his words. Nothing has changed regarding border policy. This is just your normal every year spring surge. Not true on both counts. First of all, there were no spring surges under Trump. So it doesn't happen every single year. But more importantly here, there were two policies that Biden changed. Two massive uh, policies. And this, what I'm saying here is not a partisan hit. These are absolute facts. Two policies. First, safe third country is what it's technically called. So if you're seeking asylum from Honduras or Brazil or wherever, you seek it in the first safe country that you get to. You don't get to go country shopping. If you're in Brazil and you want to leave Brazil, you don't just get to pick whatever country you want in the world to go to and say, oh, America. And then you're entitled to come to America. That's not how that works. Trump enacted the safe third country policy. So if you're leaving a country, you're safe in the very first one you get to, that's where you stay. And then you can apply to come to America afterwards, but not on asylum. Trump enacted that. He negotiated that with the countries to our South. How did he negotiate it? Money, aid, leverage. Years ago, I remember talking on the radio about foreign aid and I was asking why, I was genuinely asking, why do we give so much money to foreign countries? Why do we give so much money to countries we hate? And the best argument I heard, and I, I just filed it away because it never really came up again until recently. The best argument I heard was that this aid is leverage that we have over other countries, right? You do what we want or else we're going to take away the aid. That happens all the time. This is what Joe Biden did with Ukraine to help his son Hunter. Remember this clip? 
And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah. I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch. So do what we want or we'll remove the billion dollars in aid. So Biden used it to protect his son in Ukraine. That's leverage. Trump used it to help the American people and stop a surge of illegal immigrants for three plus years. And it should be noted as well, if you look at the last 40 years, Donald Trump was number one, number three, and number 10 in granting asylum requests. Number three, number one, number three, and number 10 in granting legal asylum requests, more than any other president. And Trump used leverage on our foreign, using our foreign aid in our southern, on the southern countries to have this third safe country agreement and Biden got rid of it. Okay. So that's a policy change. Second, Trump had a policy that if you apply to come into America, you got to wait in Mexico and Biden got rid of that as well. So those are two pretty big policy changes and worse than maybe all that word spread that if you send your kids across alone, then they'll be allowed to stay. That's why we have over 15,000 unaccompanied kids right now. This is crazy. So Trump got criticized for family separation, right? Mom and a kid, they come across and we separate them. Now, we did that to make sure that family members, these people were actually related and they weren't just kidnapped kids. Kidnapped kids used as props to get special treatment for the, the smugglers, right? This is the Flores Agreement. Have you heard of the Flores Agreement? Let me give you the very short of it. Uh, 1985, there was a 15-year-old undocumented immigrant girl from El Salvador, Jenny Flores, and she came over to America illegally. She was put in a, in a camp or a, whatever they call them, a center. And her mom later sued, saying that she was kept in the same area as adult men. And that wasn't safe. So this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And a decade later, our government came up with what's called the Flores Agreement. And among other things, it says children have to be separated from adults because it's not safe to put them together when they're not necessarily related. So we separated kids for the safety of the kids. So America got criticized when we kept adults and kids together. We get criticized when they get separated, but we did it for their own safety. Now, word is spread that if you send your kids across alone, they have a better likelihood of staying. So now the family separation is happening on the other side of the border. Mothers making the heart-wrenching decision to send their 12-year-old daughter across alone. They may never see him again. And we're okay with this. That's the compassionate thing to allow this, to enable this, to embolden the cartels to make this, to allow this to happen. And the people who support this are compassionate. Somehow, drug cartels, kidnapping kids, sending them across the border, often, which we'll talk about in the next hour, ending up in sex slavery, either on this side or this, uh, our side or this side of the border, raped along the way, some dying on the journey. And the people who enable this they get the credit for being compassionate. Mike Slater.locals.com. Filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word.
What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater out of San Diego, filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Thanks for being here. MikeSlater.locals.com is where we hang out and we put everything, TV show, radio show, this show, everything, MikeSlater.locals.com. So last week on my local show, we talked about Evanston, Illinois, 30 minutes north of Chicago. Reparations. They enacted reparations for black families. Every black family gets $25,000 for a home purchase, uh, home improvements, anything related to the home, $25,000. And immediately, the activists said, oh, that's wonderful. We are content and grateful. Now, immediately, they said, no, that's not enough. So we went from $0 in reparations because it's an insanely absurd idea we went from $0 to $25,000 and boom, immediately, no, oh, it's not enough. Not enough. It'll never be enough. Know that. So that was outside Chicago. Uh, Oakland did not want to be outdone. They have a new guaranteed income program. Uh, it's called a couple different things. Um, universal basic income, guaranteed minimum income, different names for it across our country and in Europe. Same thing though. Uh, but in Oakland, this guaranteed income is for all families of color. No white people. <laughs> you got white, you're white in Oakland? No, 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 you don't get any. Got to be of color, whatever that even means. 500 bucks a month, no strings attached. So they did this in Stockton a couple of years ago, one of the nation's first pilot programs of it, and there was a study done of it. Totally non-biased study. Abs no... No bias whatsoever. And they concluded, again, no bias. Residents who received regular payments experienced less income volatility, secured more full-time employment, were better parents and partners, and even saw improvements in their health and overall well-being. Well, gosh, golly, wouldn't you know it? This is great then. There's no problems at all. Nothing bad happened at all. It was great. You give free, you give you give people free money, and they're happier. And not only happier, but they're better parents, and somehow get more employment for some magical reason that makes no sense at all. How about that one? You give people you give people five hundred bucks a month, and they get more employment. Ah, but it's great. Let's go ahead. That, that's all the study I need to see. So in Oakland. You are uh, eligible for free money if you have a child under 18, make less than $59,000, and then you get you know another six grand a year. And the key with this program is you have to be black. Why? Because white people in Oakland, on average, make three times as much as black households. So that's inequity. And every inequity is racist and needs to be evened out. Now, what if you're a white family who makes $20,000? Nope. That's your, you still have white privilege. If your white family makes $20,000 a year in Oakland, you are not eligible for this program because you're not black. And this is uh, a wonderful way to run a society. Sorry, I'm a little sarcastic this morning. Sarcasm doesn't really come across the radio that well. I apologize. I'll stop with the sarcasm. This is a terrible way to run a society. But I love this. Uh, this is a great line from CBS. CBS totally straight here with this line. Guaranteed income has been a goal of the Black Panther platform since its founding. Oh, goody. 
now I'm convinced if the Black Panthers have been for it, <laughs> that's that's good. Since it's founding, oh good, the Black Panthers in the '60s were for it. Therefore, it's a great idea. Good night. So the left is going to keep pushing for this uh, statewide in California, surely, and then nationwide, absolutely as well. It's just a matter of time. This is what they do. It's what they do. They slowly inch it in. Slowly inch it in, and then people get used to it. And very quickly, you can't imagine life without it. Right? That's it. Right? Right now, like the idea of everyone gets free money, like that's insane. But then, oh, it's just it's just five hundred dollars. It's just some people five hundred dollars, and then it's, oh well, a thousand dollars, thousand dollars. Oh, more people. We need more people. The more everyone gets two thousand dollars, and then years go on, and now. If anyone were to propose getting rid of it or making any amends to it, like like Social Security, for instance. Oh, you can't touch it. You can't, right? you can't live life without it. My favorite example of that is the Head Start program. Head Start program. Head Start started in 1965. It was a two-week-long catch-up summer school program to get kids ready for elementary school. Two weeks, few kids of a certain age, getting ready for school now it's a 10 billion dollar program and it's all the way down to infants and if you dare suggest we make any amendments to it whatsoever then you hate children that's how it works always and that's how it's going to work with universal guaranteed income as well there's an assemblyman in california who has a bill uh, it's a thousand dollars a month for all low-income families he was gracious enough to include white people on this one at least for now. So that's going to cost a cool $129 billion a year, which just a couple of years ago would have been double the state budget of California, $129 billion. Uh, right now, it's only half the budget, only half. And it's going to be paid for by a new 1% tax on the rich, everybody over $2 million in income. That's it, piece of cake. That's all it takes. And he says, the guy who uh, wrote this bill, he says it's probably not going to pass this year. And here's the, here's the key. But he said his goal is to get people comfortable with the idea. Quote, the initial shock seems to wear off the more people are educated and realize the benefits of having more control over their lives. That's fantastic. If you think free money from the government gives you more control over your life, you're absolutely out of your mind. You've, you've no, you don't think that's going to come with strings attached? They say no strings attached. Hmm. Okay. There are a million economic reasons to be against this. I will have plenty of time for that. Let me make the moral argument. Can we make the moral argument against it? Because this is the one that's most overlooked. And I think it's the most foundational, the most important. Work is good. Thomas Sowell would argue that we've removed from the family the dad with the obvious implications of that. And now we've removed the job. Work is good. Work is, dare I say, essential to finding proper meaning in life. And it's not the work itself, necessarily. I'm not saying you should find meaning in, in the work you do. It's meaning in the process of work and the reasons why you do the work. That's the most important thing. Why are you doing the work? Who are you providing for? That's what matters. 
Arthur C. Brooks, he wrote a great book. I definitely recommend it. It's called The Conservative Heart. And he says there's four, it's a, it's a couple of years, maybe eight years old, something like that. And he said there's four institutions of meaning. That's what he calls them, institutions of meaning. He says it's faith, family, community, and meaningful work. Faith, family, community, meaningful work. These are the things that we as individuals need to lean into and we as a society need to encourage. Faith, family, community, and meaningful work. When you take away someone's need to work, when you take away their need to work, they can spiral deeper into depression and uselessness and hopelessness and they lose dignity and they know it. There's a homeless charity in town here called Solutions for Change in San Diego and part of their deal is you're in this program, you wake up early and you get to work. They know it's essential to building someone's dignity back. This is a clip I want to play. This is Jordan Peterson on, uh, of all places, the Dr. Oz show. And they're talking about redistribution of wealth. And Jordan Peterson gets into it a bit. And so I was very attracted to that end of the political spectrum. But as I came to investigate some of the problems I've been discussing more deeply, I started to understand that mere economic rectification was insufficient, that that wasn't the level of analysis that was appropriate for my inquiry anyways translated redistribution of income doesn't work well think about it this way the guaranteed basic income idea it's like well that's predicated on the idea that man lives by bread alone well that isn't Mm -hmm. how it works and i've certainly seen that in my clinical practice i've had clients especially addicts if you gave them money they would die and the reason for that like one guy that i remember in particular i liked him quite a bit he had a bad cocaine problem and uh as long as he was flat broke, he wasn't dead. But as soon as his, he was on disability, as soon as his disability check came in, he was face down in a ditch three days later. So, well, and you think, well, maybe that's a consequence of his overwhelming poverty, etc. You could come up with some social reason for the, that path that he took. But it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination that simple. It's like people need purpose more than money, even. People need purpose? more than money even people need purpose more than money even does man live by bread alone we have a major problem in our country of of nihilism lack of meaning lack of purpose and we think throwing money at the problem will make people happy and fix it now the problem is much worse than that and throwing money at it will only make it worse i got one more thing to say about this i gotta take a break mike slater.locals.com mike slater filling in for buck sexton spread the word 18 buck Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton today. Mike Slater.locals.com. Um, we're talking about guaranteed minimum income. Uh, Oakland is the first big city to do this. They just started. It's only for families of color as well, but it's going to grow and it's going to expand. And we got to be prepared with the argument against this because um, it's, it's the Democrats are definitely pushing this and there's a million economic arguments to make against it. And they're all rock solid, but I want to make the moral argument, and that is that meaningful work is important. And it's not necessarily the work itself, although, yes, it's who you're working for. Why are you working? Who are you providing for? Who are you caring for? That's what matters. You take that away from somebody, and they can spiral deeper and darker into nihilism and meaninglessness and purposelessness. Jordan Peterson, he says, it isn't the provision of material well-being with ease that allows people to live properly. It's purpose. And that's a much more difficult problem to solve. You just can't throw money at it. 
the mere offering of material sustenance to people is not going to solve that problem. He says Dostoevsky knew this 150 years ago. He said, if you gave people everything they wanted, everything they wanted, so all they had to do was eat cakes and busy themselves with the continuation of the species. <laughs> so eat and have sex. The first thing they do is smash it all to hell so that something interesting could happen. Men are made for more than that, more than just money. Peter Cove, he says, work does so much more than provide for our basic needs. Work draws us into the public square and instills in us a sense of personal responsibility. These are the deeper things that are so important to want someone's life and to raising children. It allows people to feel the pride and self-respect that come with supporting their spouses and their children. Again, so it's not the work, although yes, the quality of work, yes, but it's who you're doing it for, who you're providing for, who you're supporting in it. Dostoevsky, he made the point that we're not keys of a piano. We're not just piano keys. Humans are not cogs in some grand economic machine, which is how the left looks at humans. That's how the left looks at people. That's how communists looked at people, that we were just tools of the state. We're here for the state. Everything's purpose becomes not to glorify God, but to glorify the state. That's how, the, that's how the degression goes. So first, the highest is to glorify God. So we've gotten rid of God. So now what do we do? Well, we glorify ourselves. That's what we've been doing. That's the narcissistic culture that we've been living in for how many decades now? We glorify ourselves. The next degradation of that is you glorify the state. There is no humanity. There is no God. There is no humanity. There is no individual. There is no family. It's all about the government. This is why Martin Luther King Jr. was against communism. People think that Martin Luther King Jr. was, was a supporter of communism. No, no. He expressly denounced it. I got a quote. He says, I opposed communism's political totalitarianism. In communism, the individual ends up in subjugation to the state. And if man's so-called rights and liberties stand in the way of that end, well, they're swim simply swept aside. A man's liberties of expression, his freedom to vote, his freedom to listen to what news he likes or to choose his books are all restricted. Man becomes hardly more in communism than a depersonalized cog in the turning wheel of the state. And okay, Martin Luther King Jr., the reverend, explicitly denounced communism. And he gave it a shot. He, he read uh, Das Kapital. He read the Communist Manifesto. He read people's writings about those works and he rejected it all. He said, communism, avowedly secularistic and materialistic, has no place for God. Communism looks at man as, as a one-dimensional one -dimensional economic creature and that's it. And that's what the left is today. They, now they, they couch it better. Oh goodness, they couch it better. Right, the communists, they were flat out about it, right? Like, you don't matter. You're just a wheel in the system, right? Or a cog in the system. Today, they know that that doesn't sell, right? So people today who pitch this, these same communist ideas, they pitch it, oh, but, oh, it's about dignity and it's about helping people and it's about flourishing in life and it's about uh, achieving your dreams. Oh, we can pay this person and then they can go achieve their dreams. They don't have to work. They can go be an artist and reach their full potential. Nah, it's the same old stuff, just better marketing. They couch it, of course, as, Helping, we're helping our fellow man. 
Uh, they're destroying souls in the process. I want to come back with a story of illegal immigration that no one wants to talk about, no one wants to listen to. Uh, I'm taking a risk here because I'm, I'm, it's a great honor to fill in for Buck Sexton, and I'm going to do something that no one wants to hear. It's really hard to hear, and it's quite a downer on a Friday, I admit. But I don't hear anyone talking about it, and it's essential to understand and get a firm grasp of. And I think once we do, then the people who are at least taking credit for being the compassionate ones, the open border people, they get credit for being compassionate. Uh, maybe they'll start to see the light that they're not. MikeSlater.Locals.com, filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Hey, Team Buck. Mike Slater in San Diego, filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Buck and I have been friends for a long time. We both have TV shows on the first, uh, and uh, it's an honor to be filling in for for Buck today. MikeSlater.Locals.com is my website. We put everything up there. MikeSlater.Locals.com. So I want to talk about something here that no one wants to hear. And I'm, I'm hesitant to do it, to be honest, because I have this great honor of filling in for Buck and I'm just going to ruin it because <laughs> everyone's going to change the station because no one wants to hear this. But I think it's really important. So if, if you or someone can pick this up and run with it, then, then I think it's worth it. So we talked about the border earlier in the first half hour of the show. So I want to talk about a, and you know Biden talking about how oh there's been no border change policy at all. Like what? There's been two massive policy changes actually. And we went into great detail about that and the Flores agreement from 1985 and all that earlier. But I want to talk about an aspect of the border. A, and I know, I know we, should have, we should have much lighter fare on a Friday. But this is a very dark side of the border story that no one wants to talk about. We skirt around it. It's funny. That there's, some people don't want to come anywhere near the truth when it comes to the border. They just want to live in their fairytale land about what goes on there. And some people, they say they want the truth, but they still don't want to hear the really difficult and dark things. Because who wants to be bummed out, but in this segment, and I want to keep it just to one segment, it's for those who want the depth of truth that I think we need to really understand to get the fullness of the problem that we're dealing with at the border. People who are for open borders, they choose to make up this story in their head about the downtrodden immigrant who comes to America, wants to make a life better for themselves, and works hard, and succeeds, succeeds, hooray! And that's the, the dreamers! That's their story. Everyone's a dreamer coming over. And the fewer details that they make up in their head, they make up a movie in their head about what this is like. And the fewer details they provide in their head, the better. They'll think as little as they need to think in order to feel good and pat themselves on the back for being such a good person. What they don't want to consider are the young girls and women who are kidnapped into the sex trade. There's a documentary from Fusion. It's on YouTube. It's free. It's called Pimp City. It's about a city outside of Mexico City that their main industry is kidnapping girls and young women and sending them to Queens, Queens, New York, where they're prostituted out up to 60 times a day. 
Houston is a major sex trafficking hub. Uh, it's right in the middle of this, the whole thing, right? It's in the middle of LA and Miami and also in the middle of the United States and Latin America. And obviously it's a major port city and the whole thing. And women who are looking to come to America, they're told, oh, we'll get you across, we'll get you a visa. No problem. But they don't have any money. Right? So, uh, 59% of Guatemala, Guatemalans, live on uh, the world under the world poverty rate, which is a dollar ninety a day. Okay, they don't have any money. And then people say, oh, that's no problem. That's no problem. Come with us and you just work a little to pay it off. We'll work in a restaurant. You'll be a, wait- a waitress in a restaurant. That's all. No big deal. So they do and they come across and their job description changes. And they're moved to a different city every two weeks and they're slaves. The Houston DA says about 70% of trafficking victims end up in the sex trade. You don't see those. Don't talk about those. Don't hear about those. So the going rate to get to America through these traffickers, it's $30,000. But you live in Thailand or some Eastern European poor country or Latin America, you got 30 grand. So it's an installment plan, that's all. Because you think also, you're like, all right, I don't, I don't have $30,000, right? Make a dollar ninety a day, I'm $30,000. But in America, everyone's rich. So you'll make it in no time. 30,000 bucks will make that in no time, no problem. So girls say yes. And then you find out that if you don't pay your debt, your family will pay it. Or really, your family will pay for it with their lives. So you come across the border, you do the harrowing journey to get here. You get raped along the way, of course. Many die along the way. But you get here and your new boss buys you lunch and you're amazed. You're like, this is unbelievable. This, what, the portions, look at all this food. And no one wants anything from me. Huh. Let me read, this is from uh, Texas Monthly Magazine. While you're in this state, dizzy, disoriented, your boss takes you to a place that isn't a restaurant or a factory and tells you to unpack your few belongings in a dingy back room. He tells you that this is where you're going to work to pay off your debt. You will be a prostitute, he explains. And by the way, you'll be charged for room and board while you're paying off that 30 grand. When you protest, he beats you, starves you, keeps you awake for days on end. Then, just to make himself clear, He holds up a picture of your son or your parents or your sister and tears it in half. That's all I can uh, handle of that. Uh, If you want to read more, again, Texas Monthly, and it's an article called The Lost Girls. Let me put it on the website, actually. I'll put it on mikeslater.locals.com. You can read it yourself. You can read the whole thing. If you want to know the fullness of the story, this is why we need to shut down the border. People ask me, why do we need to shut down the border? This is the number one reason. We need to stop sex trafficking across the border. On that side, because some of these girls never even make it across. And of course, on our side, uh, months or years ago in San Diego, we talked to a human trafficking expert. There's a ton of human trafficking in San Diego, border town. And he said, every public high school, so he said, he said, every public high school has a student who's a member of a human trafficking gang or a gang that's in the human trafficking business. And this student 
their job is to be on the lookout for girls who are lost. Girls who their family is going through a divorce or whatever it is, right? Whatever difficult situation, they're just out of it. And of course, these gang members are going to look for migrant kids who have no families who are going to be flooding our schools now, 15,000 of them. And they're going to work to seduce them into the sex trade. And those ones who even make it to high school, those are the lucky ones. I mean, they're lucky they made it even that far along the journey, but they're never out of it. Right? Many of these girls never even make it to America. They never make it to a family. They never make it to a high school. But even then, they're not out of it. People are shocked to find out the how prevalent this is. And my point of bringing it up here, again, I'm sorry to be a Debbie Downer on Friday. I'm sorry to be a Debbie Downer on Buck's show. But there are people who enable this. They enable this with their open borders. They empower the cartels and the sex traffickers of women and little girls. It's not just me. This is not you know right wing. This is so weird. This is something you would think the bleeding heart liberal would be all about, right? You think they'd be jumping up and down. And years ago they were. This is New York Times. They wrote an article. You have to pay with your body the hidden nightmare of sexual violence on the border. And they tell a bunch of stories. I'm not going to share them. This is just one. A, a smuggler raped a 23-year-old Honduran woman and her four-year-old daughter. Right? So when you hear Nancy Pelosi and you hear all the, la- the rest, and they're like, oh, you come, you know, come on over. We'll take care of you, the whole thing. That's what they're enabling. That's what they're enabling. We hear this when it comes to gun control bills, right? Gun control bills. If it saves just one life, but you don't hear that same thing on the border. We need to shut down the border to stop enriching and empowering the cartels. We need order at the border because I don't want women and children to be raped and drugged into sex slavery. We need a coherent, clear message to the cartels that this is not possible. You will not make it across. And we need a streamlined process for those who want to make it here legally. It's better for us. And more importantly, it's better for the people who want to come here. General rule of thumb for Mike Slater as I think about policies. I'm generally for policies that drug cartels don't like. I'm generally for policies that sex traffickers don't like. If they don't like it, it's probably a good thing. An order at the border would be one of those. MikeSlater.Locals.com. I'll put up both those articles right now. MikeSlater.Locals.com. Spread the word. 18 buck. Mike Slater. Filling in for Buck Saxton today. MikeSlater.Locals.com. Changing gears here. Uh, I saw a a really nice visual representation of what's going on in our country today. Uh, And the the main debate that's going on in our country. Because the debate's not about the Second Amendment. Right. Although, yes, I saw a great segment on Buck's TV show last night on the latest gun control laws coming out of D.C. and how they do nothing to address crime and they make a criminal out of you. But I'm talking about the deeper philosophical debate that's going on in our country. So I want to try to spell this out. I'll try to make this visual on the radio here. A little uh, theater of the mind. So imagine a pyramid. You with me? Imagine a pyramid and uh, there's three levels to the pyramid. Bottom, middle, top. At the base of the pyramid, 
is modernism. Modernism is science, reason, objective truth. The middle are these classical liberal ideas. Capitalism, freedom of speech, individualism, uh, equality of opportunity, meritocracy. And then at the top is politics. So these are cultural norms, laws, institutions, things like that. The normal progressive and the normal conservative, they argue over the top section, right? Your, your neighbor and, and you, you, you got, you know, and back in the day, <laughs> we'd debate about policies and laws and things like that. And progressives would want to change these things and conservatives generally want to conserve, conserve or preserve these things. Make sense? That's a, you know, a normal debate. And there's, that's, this is good. This is a good thing. No problem here whatsoever. Democrat says we need to raise taxes. Conservative says we need to lower taxes. Fine. I miss those old-fashioned debates. Right? That's a fine conversation to have and a very good, healthy thing in a healthy society. And both of these people, the progressive and the conservative, think that the bottom levels of this pyramid are good and need to be preserved. Everyone here in this conversation believes that truth exists and that capitalism and freedom of speech and meritocracy are good things. Fine. But then... There are another group of people, not your run-of-the-mill Democrats, but Marxists with a Marxist worldview. They come into the picture and they say, oh, you regular progressives, you Democrats, you don't go far enough. We don't just need to change policies and laws. A Marxist believes that it's the liberal ideas of America that are the problem. It's the liberal ideas of, of America that inevitably lead to oppression. So not only do we need to change the laws and the policies, but we got to get rid of capitalism. We got to get rid of individualism. We got to get rid of meritocracy. We got to get rid of freedom of speech entirely. That's the middle level of the pyramid. And this is why you see Marxists justify shutting down freedom of speech and calling for an end to capitalism itself. That's why these people who run these diversity seminars, they, you know, they, they have a list of white supremacy values and one of them is merit. Merit is a white supremacy value. Kamala herself saying it's not about equality of opportunity, it's about equality of outcome. That's what matters the most. We actually got a clip of this. This was during the campaign. So there's a big difference between equality and equity. Equality suggests, oh, everyone should get the same amount. The problem with that, not everybody's starting out from the same place. So if we're all getting the same amount, but you started out back there and I started out over here, we can get the same amount, but you're still going to be that far back behind me. It's about giving people the resources and the support they need so that everyone can be on equal footing and then compete on equal footing. Equitable treatment means we all end up at the same place. Mm, there it is. Equitable treatment means we all end up at the same place. So meritocracy uh, doesn't exist. E equality of opportunity, no, 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 no. It's equality of outcome, right? So they're in the middle. They're, they're debating the middle part of this pyramid. That's very different than arguing over higher taxes or lower taxes. This is trying to up, up, overhaul the building blocks of this country. That's the Marxist view. Of course, they've taken over college campuses, and that's infiltrated now out of college campuses, of course, into really every institution in America, the march through the institutions. You name it, Hollywood, music, academia, K-12, medical school, law school, everything. AM Talk Radio, we're the only people left. AM Talk Radio is the only conservative institution left in the country. Everything else is taken over by 
not only progressives, but by Marxists who want to undermine that, undermine and overhaul that middle section of the pyramid. And then finally, the bottom level of the pyramid, the modernism level, you have not progressives, not Marxists, but you have postmodernists. A postmodernist comes in and says, hey, you guys, you're, you progressives, you're, you're not taking it far enough. It's not just the laws and institutions and policies that need to change goodness. No. And Marxists, you're not going far enough. It's not just capitalism that has to go. It's not just freedom of speech and individuality and individualism and, and meritocracy. And it's, 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 we got to go way further than that. It's objective truth that has to go. There's no such thing as objective truth. Reason has to go. And this is where you get people talking about like lived experiences and things like this, like these ideas where truth doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as truth. Who are you to say what's right or wrong? Two plus two could equal five. We spent a ton of time on my local show about uh, postmodern math. They call it anti-racist uh, math, where two plus two could equal five. Who are you to say it doesn't? And these people are becoming more and more prevalent, not necessarily in number, although yes, but in power and influence. Postmodernists. Take a look at your kid's textbook. Take a look at your kid's school textbook. Popular Mechanics wrote an article uh, recently, why some people think two plus two equals five and why they're right. There's a ton here. Uh, I'm going to put it on the website too. I'll put it on mikeslater.locals.com so you can see it yourself. Um, and it's really important to know who you're talking to. First of all, who you're talking to, but also who you're receiving inputs from in your life. Like who's... Like, right, so when you watch a movie or watch a TV show or put your kids in front of the TV or put your, let your kids browse the internet or send your kids off to certain schools, what inputs are they receiving? Are they receiving inputs from progressives, from Marxists, or from postmodernists? Are these progressives who disagree on policy? Are these Marxists who disagree on the principles of America? Are these postmodernists who disagree on reason and objective truth even existing at all? We need to be able to understand that, know that, and then respond accordingly. We'll put it on the website, mikeslater.locals.com. Coming up next, I have one of my favorite Abraham Lincoln stories. You're going to love this story. I think about it all the time. We'll share it next. mikeslater.locals.com. Filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater, filling in for uh, Buck again today. Thanks for being here. Uh, I want to share here one of my favorite stories in this next segment. It just, I don't know, I think about it every once in a while and it inspires me to read more, to dive deeper into topics, to fight against culture and to be better than what culture is feeding us and just dragging us down. That's what culture drags us down. It gives you such a low bar, and uh, we need to do better here in the Freedom Hut with Buck Sexton. So that's what I want to talk about coming up in this segment right here. But first, uh, ExpressVPN. So the internet, uh, it, everyone's following you and tracking you and everything you do, right? How do you protect your internet activity? How do you protect your internet activity? Everything you search for, watch, click, even how much time you spend on certain websites, where your mouse is on websites, everything is tracked by big tech. How do you get around that? ExpressVPN. Your IP address is masked by a secure VPN server. That's how it works. 
So ExpressVPN, the app, it also encrypts your network data to prevent to, to protect you on your phone as well. And you can do up to five devices simultaneously with a single subscription. So give them a call. Stop giving your, your information over to Big Tech and over to the government. Buck and I trust VPN, ExpressVPN for online protection. ExpressVPN.com slash Buck. You get three months free, one year package. Or you just keep giving all your information and data over to Big Tech and they can follow you, track you, and sell you. That's fine. You keep doing that. ExpressVPN.com slash Buck. This is the way out. You get three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash Buck. What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater here in San Diego, filling in for the great Buck Sexton today. MikeSlater.locals.com. That's where we put everything. That's our website, MikeSlater.locals.com. All right, I want to share this story. It's one of my favorites. This is from Neil Postman's book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. Look, can I just read a little bit? Uh, He says, the first of seven famous debates between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen A. Douglas took place on April, excuse me, August 21st, 1858 in Ottawa, Illinois. Aren't we there? So we got the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, 1858. The arrangement provided that Douglas would speak first for one hour. Lincoln would take an hour and a half to reply. And then Douglas, a half hour to reply, to, to rebut it. So what's that? We got uh, was an hour and a half, uh, was it uh, hour, hour and a half, half hour, three hours, three hour total. That's a long time. <laughs> How many movies do people watch today and they're like, oh yeah, it was good, but ugh, it was three hours, so long. Neil Postman says this debate was considerably shorter than those which these two men were accustomed. In fact, they've tangled several times before and all of their encounters have been much lengthier and more exhausting. For example, check this out. 1854 in Peoria, Douglas delivered a three-hour address, (laughs) you imagine a three-hour speech, to which Lincoln, by agreement, was to respond. When Lincoln's turn came, so everyone in the audience just listened to to, uh, Stephen A. Douglas for three hours. Now it's Lincoln's turn. He reminded the audience that it was already 5 p.m., and that he would probably require as much time as Douglas. And that Douglas was still scheduled for a rebuttal to him. He proposed, therefore, that the audience go home, eat dinner, and return refreshed for four more hours of talk. The audience amiably agreed, went home, ate dinner, came back, and matters proceeded as Lincoln had outlined. What kind of audience was this? Who were these people who could so cheerfully accommodate themselves to seven hours of oratory? The audience's attention span would obviously have been extraordinary by current standards. Is there any audience of Americans today who could endure seven hours of talk or five or three, especially without pictures of any kind? Isn't that amazing? This is a um, major problem that we're not very smart. Now, uh, before you get offended at that, I'm including myself in that absolutely as well. I'm not very smart. Have you ever 
take it. So first of all, the citizenship exam, right? Like only 20% of high schoolers can pass the citizenship exam. And this is like basic stuff, like how many states are there? But have you ever seen these tests from like a middle school classroom, like a, like a fifth grade classroom from 1930? And I, I don't know any of the answers. They're ridiculously difficult. This, the, the bar is so low today. I have not read nearly any of the classics. I really haven't. And I'm starting to. I've been starting this last year. So actually, when I first heard that Abraham, this Abraham Lincoln story I'm sharing right here, I was like, I'm, I got some work to do. But I just, I, I don't have, I haven't read these classics. I certainly didn't read them growing up. And I don't have the tools that are necessary to think deeply about important topics. Recently, a friend of mine who I recruited for this effort, we read Hamlet. And even just reading Hamlet, I feel myself, you know, thinking back on it a lot, all the often. But then I get this regret, like, oh, what if I, what if I spent my childhood learning about the classics, reading the classics, you know? Very few people do. Almost no one these days has, has a complete tool belt to think about things deeply. Almost no one today could listen to Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas or anyone talk for seven hours about things. Abraham Lincoln, when he was a boy, he didn't have iPads, right? He didn't have the latest technology, but he just, just devoured every book he could get his hands on. He would read it multiple times. Every book was gold. He had a much longer attention span than we do and much fewer choices. Today, we have infinite choices and no attention span. Try that one on. Abraham Lincoln had very few choices and a very long attention span. We have infinite choices and no attention span. Which is better? Which would you choose? We're living in the latter and we are spastic. <laughs> We're spastic because of it. Just choices nonstop. How many times do you catch yourself reading something and you just read a couple of pages and you're like, oh, I don't, I just, I just blanked out. I didn't read any of that. Or you're reading something online and it's just scrolling, you just scroll, scroll, just scrolling on Twitter. You're just scrolling. You're not even looking at the tweet. Just scroll, 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 scroll. Just infinite choices, no attention span. Think about the Lincoln Douglas debate, right? In 54. Before they weren't even running for anything, by the way. Or they, I mean they were running for but they weren't running for president, I should say. They weren't running for president in 1954 or 1854. So think about all these people at the these original Lincoln Douglas debates. They had longer attention spans, fewer choices. What else were they gonna do after dinner? <laughs> There's nothing else going on. So imagine the excitement in town when this was going on. I think this is one reason why we're just in a bad place today. Here's what Neil Postman wrote. And I love this so much. He says, so there's two dystopian books that are often uh, cited and, and one of them much more than the other. You got George Orwell's 1984 and uh, Huxley's Brave New World. Two dystopian futures, two very different dystopian futures. And Neil Postman said what George Orwell feared were those who would ban books, right? So he, he feared Big Brother coming in banning books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Right. Think about it. We've talked a lot on my local show about uh, Ryan, Ryan T. Alexander, his book about transgenderism and, and 
anyway, it's from a conservative perspective, if you will, and uh, banned from Amazon. And how many people even really care, <laughs> right? So we're closer to Huxley, where people are like, ah, whatever, doesn't matter. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. And that's where we are today. We got this news cycle constantly bombarding you with too much. So you're just numb to it. George Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would, be, we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. Compare us with that audience in Peoria, Illinois in 1854. You'd think we'd be so much smarter. If you were to compare, honestly, if you were to line us up, <laughs> the people in Peoria in 1854 and wherever you are today in 2021, and you put these two people next to each other, it would be like, they wouldn't even be two different cultures, it'd be two different species. I mean, they'd like, like we're from two different planets. So the question is, how can we intellectually, morally even too, how can we live like it's 1865 in Peoria, Illinois, with more focus and fewer distractions? Right, so how can we live? This is the question. How can we live in 2021? Because we can't go back. So how can we live in 2021 with the modern conveniences and the benefits, et cetera, et cetera, of living today, but with more focus and fewer distraction? First thing, demand more out of yourself. As Postman said, what kind of man do you think I am? That's what we need to ask these people who are peddling garbage. He said, any rational, decent man would ask to the people who are peddling this garbage, what kind of man do you think I am? So, but you need to know that you're better than what you're being fed by our culture. And, and if, once you start saying, you start saying stuff like that, like, oh, like you think, like what kind of person do you think I am? You're gonna get a lot of pressure. You're gonna be like, oh, you think you're so much better than that? Yes, yes, I do. I believe I, we, you even are much better than this. And just don't partake in it anymore. Have some, have some respect, man. And then, so demand more and then find the places and the things that bring you perspective and peace. And that's what we try to do on my show and Buck as well. Perspective and peace, that's the name of the game. We need more of that. So find someone, find something that brings that to you and latch onto it. Because it's going to help just get rid of distraction and it's going to help focus. So again, how can we intellectually live like it's 1865 with fewer distraction and more focus? That's my challenge this year. Mike Slater locals.com filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. 18 Buck, Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton. Mike Slater.locals.com. That's our website. There's a high school in Columbus, Ohio. Of course, they got rid of the classics because they're racist. And you got to replace everything with the uh, uh, the new. Oh, they're so great, these new things. This In one case, they in this school, they replaced a uh, the classics with a slam poetry book called the poet x in the first two pages the underaged character zymara x-i-o-m-a-r-a zymara 
approached drug dealers who catcalled her, and the drug dealer says, church girls are all freaks. Ayo, Zymara, you need to start wearing dresses like that. Word I can't say on the radio, you'd be wifed up before going back to school. That's how you read the slam poetry. You say some words like this with awkward breaks in them, and that's called slam poetry. Especially knowing you church girls are all freaks. That's the first page of this uh, book for high schoolers. Uh, the main character believes that Christianity, the bedrock of her familiar values, hinders her ability to live freely. It's not, here's the, this is the poem. It's not any one thing that makes me wonder about the capital G-O-D, about a holy trinity that doesn't include the mother. It's all the things. Just seems as I get older, I begin to really see the way the church treats a girl like me differently. Sometimes it feels I'm, uh, all I'm worth is under my skirt and not between my ears. Sometimes I feel life wouldn't be e- would be easier if I didn't feel like such a debt to a God that didn't really seem to be out there checking for me. It's like, whatever. Feed our garbage to, the, to our kids. You're going to drop your kids off at a public school? Listen, I'm a, a guest of, uh, of Buck's today. Uh, I'm pretty sure <laughs> Buck would agree with me, but I want to be a little, a little hesitant to go on a full rant, as I do on my local show, about how you should never, ever drop your kids off at a public school for the rest of your life. It is child abuse if you do so. Stop doing it. Because this is the garbage they're being peddled. And there's a weird tension, and I, I get it, where you, the, the, the teachers' unions are using your kids not being in school as leverage for more money. So the left doesn't want your kids back in school. So conservatives are like, no, we need kids back in school. And I'm just want to be here like, well, hold on. You should never want your kids back in public school. I don't understand the conservative who's like, come on, governor. My kid's got to get back in that indoctrination center as quickly as possible. He's got to learn all about the horrible things about America. Now this is a terrible country and how all white people are racist. Get our kids back in school. It's like, wait a second. Why are you fighting for this? You should be using this last year, have been using it. You should continue to use whatever time you have left to do whatever it takes to never send your kid to a public school ever again. And don't tell me, oh, my kid goes to a good public school. No, they don't. Because the curriculum all comes from the top. I live in California, so ours are like one of the worst. But every state is becoming more and more like this. And don't tell me, oh, my kid is in the Excelled program. No, they're not. Those won't exist for long. I did a segment on this a couple weeks ago in San Diego. The next day, the second biggest school district in the in the county released that they're getting rid of, they call it their gate program, their gifted and talented program. Uh, they're getting rid of it. It's inequitable. Not enough black and Hispanic kids in it, too many white and Asian kids, so they got rid of it because it's not fair. Okay, gone. So all these advanced programs are gone anyway. Everyone's going to have to do the same garbage curriculum from the state, from these progressives. It's a terrible thing. Never drop your kid off there ever. And oh, but, but, but later they'll learn new, oh yeah, poetry like this. Good. Yeah, they'll learn about how God is awful and God's terrible and how uh, Christianity treats women poorly and only sees them as, you know, only sees their worth as what's under my skirt. That's good. This is good. No problem there. Hurry up. Drop your kids off there. Anyway, I'm not going to do that segment because we don't really know each other well enough for me to be so bold. Yesterday, I'll end on this. Yesterday, we talked quite a bit about transgenderism. 
And my point of bringing all this transgenderism stuff up is first to help you if you know someone who's struggling with gender dysphoria. But that's not many people. For a vast majority of us, the reason I bring up this transgenderism stuff is because it's a propaganda war. If they can get you to consent to transgender ideology, right, if they can get you to agree with this stuff, that, that you're not born a gender, you decide your gender, you can change genders, all this stuff. if you agree with that, if they get you to agree with that, there's nothing they can't get you to agree with. It's very similar with critical race theory. If they get you to agree that you're born racist, all white people are racist and all that, if you admit to that and you start to flagellate yourself in shame, there's nothing they can't get you to do. And that's what propaganda really is. So I'll end with this quote from one of my favorite writers, Theodore Dalrymple. He says, I came to the conclusion that the purpose of communist propaganda was not to persuade or convince nor to inform, but to humiliate. The point of propaganda is to humiliate you. The point of this transgenderism stuff is to humiliate you. The point of this race, the critical race theory stuff is to humiliate you. And therefore, the less it corresponded to reality, the better. When people are forced to remain silent, when they're being told the most obvious lies, or even worse, when they're forced to repeat the lies themselves, they lose once and for all their sense of probity. Let me look at this word real quick. Uh, Self-respect, I believe. Let's see. Uh, the quality of having strong moral principles, honesty, and decency. To assent to obvious lies is to cooperate with evil, and in some small ways to become evil oneself. One's standing to resist anything is thus eroded and even destroyed. If you don't stand up against the, the most absurd of the propaganda being spewed your way, then you won't have the strength or courage or intellectual ability to stand up to anything. Let's draw some lines and not back down. MikeSlater.locals.com. I'll put that quote on our website, MikeSlater.locals.com. Spread the word. What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater here in San Diego, filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Thanks for being here. MikeSlater.locals.com is our website. We've already put a ton of stuff from the show today up there. Uh, MikeSlater.locals.com. I want to share this story. here. I think about this story a lot. And I hope once you hear it, you think about it a lot too. In the first hour, so first we kicked off talking about Joe Biden's press conference yesterday. We talked about the border. He said, uh, we haven't changed any immigration policies. What are you talking about? There's two massive policies you changed. Uh, we talked all about that. And then we got into uh, this conversation about the importance of work, the importance of meaningful work. Because Oakland is the first big city. There's Stockton, a couple other cities have done this before, but the first big city to have a guaranteed minimum income. 500 bucks a month, no strings, no strings attached. Uh, and their twist is only for families of color, which is going to be great. So we talked all about the problems with that and not just the economic issues with that. And there's a million of those, but the moral issues with that and what that does to one's soul. And we played a clip of Jordan Peterson and, and he speaking against this. And he said, does man live by bread alone? We have a, a much deeper problem in America than just lack of money. We have a, a nihilism problem, a lack of meaning, a lack of purpose. You throw money at that and it just makes it worse. So we talked all about work and the importance of work. And it's not necessarily the work even itself as much as, although yes, as much as why you're doing it and who you're supporting in the process, you, you take that away from people. You rob people of that and people spiral into a dark place very quickly 
You're taking people's dignity away from them. And we talked about how it's being spun uh, to, to trick you. So we did that all in the first hour. On that point, uh, I want to tell the story of Richard Montañez. Richard Montañez. Richard Montañez grew up in Cucamonga Valley. It's in Riverside County. It's uh, north of San Diego, east of L.A. Went to school, could barely speak English. Every day, he'd come home crying to his mom. Kids were asked what they wanted to be when they grew up, and you know, it was the usual doctor, astronaut. And he said nothing. He said, uh, there was no dream where I came from. He had no, no dream to become anything when he grew up. He dropped out of school in the fourth grade. Worked in farms and factories. He got a job as a janitor at a factory, $4 an hour. He was 18 years old at this point. Richard Montagna, 18 years old. Janitor, four bucks an hour. His first day of work, his grandfather pulled him aside. His grandfather, they lived in a, in a little concrete hut with, I think it was 18 family members. So he's 18 years old on his first day of the job, and his grandfather pulled him aside. And he said, son, make sure that floor shines. And let them know that a Montañas mopped it. Don't just go and do the bare minimum, do the job and get done and come home. No, 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 no. Make sure that floor shines. And let them know a Montañas mopped it. So he decided, I'm going to be the best janitor that this company's ever seen. I'm going to make a name for myself as a janitor. So he went and he did a great job mopping the floors, but he wanted more. So he spent time learning about the company's products and their manufacturing methods and their marketing. He even asked a salesman if he could tag along with them as they sell. I mean, think about that. Think of, think of that gall. Think of, you got the janitor. Roll, imagine you're the salesperson. The janitor rolls up and says, hey, do you mind if I come on a sales call with you? You'd be like, what are you, What? This was mid-1980s, and the CEO of the company, the company wasn't doing well. And the CEO started this new initiative called Act Like an Owner. They had 300,000 employees. And it wasn't going well, and, and they needed new ideas and new buy-in and new, right? So Richard, he called the CEO. He's like, this is your thing, right? Act like an owner. Like, All right, I'm going to call you up. So the secretary picks up, uh, Mr. Enrico's office, who's this? Uh, this is Richard Montañez in California. Uh, Richard, are you the uh, vice president overseeing California? Uh, no, I work at the Rancho Cucamonga plant. Oh, so you're the vice president of operations. No, I actually work inside the plant. You're the manager. No, I'm the janitor. To the secretary's credit and to the CEO's credit, he picked up the phone. And Richard made his first pitch over the phone. And the CEO said, 
Okay. Make a presentation, deliver it in person. You got two weeks. So Richard, who again dropped out of school in the fourth grade, went to the library, picked up a book on marketing strategies. Two weeks, crash course. Got ready, got himself a suit and tie. Met with the met with the met with the janitor, met with the CEO and all the executives. And you can picture this in your head perfectly, can't you? Like I just imagine this long wooden table. It's like so corporate. This room is super corporate. Long wooden table. Everyone in the same color suits. CEO way at the end, and in walks the janitor. Now I have two different versions in my head. In one version, he's still wearing his janitor uniform, which is awesome. I like that version in my head. But I also got one where he bought like a brown suit. And like this, this ugly brown, yellow, off gold tie. Are you with me? You can imagine however you want, but I think we're all pretty much in the same ballpark with envisioning this. And he says, listen, I, uh, I learned or I came up with this idea when I went on a sales call to a Hispanic neighborhood and there was no product for Mexicans. Where I grew up, we had Mexican street corn. And I think people will really like something that's inspired by that. And the CEO said, all right, what's it taste like? And he said, glad you asked. And he pulled out a hundred plastic baggies and he made his own mix. Made his own mix inside each little baggie, passed it around the room. And the CEO tasted it and said, put your mop away. You're coming with us. Richard was the janitor at the Rancho Cucamonga Frito-Lays factory. And he was the inventor of what would become Flamin' Hot Cheetos. One of the most successful launches in Frito-Lay history. He became a vice president and is now worth $20 million. It's a couple lessons from this awesome story. First, in America, we, we have the rags to riches story. We love it. We love the rags to riches, and we should. But oftentimes, we make it, we, when we tell the story, we make it seem too much like luck. Or too much like, oh, his success was inevitable. Of course, he was going to be a rags to riches. Because we're looking back on it, and he became a riches. So we're like, oh, yeah, of course it was going to go that way. No, no. Richard was poor. He did a lot more than show up to get rich. We tend to yada, yada, yada over all the defeats and difficulties and challenges, right? Like we tell the story of he was poor, showed up, got rich. Like, no, nah. <laughs> there was a lot of work, the difficulty, the research, the courage to ask salespeople to go on sales calls, right? His unpaid time off going on a sales call away from his family, sacrifices. This is a huge canyon between rags and riches. And you can't just gloss over that. Also, the root of this story, of course, it comes from his grandpa. 18 years old, first day. Make sure, you mo make sure that floor shines and let them know that a Montagna has mopped it. And that's the deal. That's the difference. It's a pride in your work. A pride in your work, therefore a pride in yourself. So when you go back to Oakland and they're like, oh, you don't have to work, because that's where we're headed. We're headed towards guaranteed minimum income, and we're all going to be living like a bunch of flat, fat slobs and Wall-E being zipped around all of us with an iPad in front of our face and no one having to work. And it's going to be so liberating, they say. No, 
A pride in your work equals a pride in yourself. And here's the other truth of this story that I love so much. Even if he didn't hit it big, even if the story does not end with, oh, and he's the vice president, he's worth $20 million. Even if Richard Montañez only mopped that floor until it shined, And if one person, if really no one, if he knew that a Montañez mopped it, even that is a beautiful American story. Even that is a job well done. Even that is the foundation of a life well lived. It doesn't have to be the rags to riches. The riches part doesn't have to be there. I'm sure if he put that much pride into his mopping, I'm sure he also put that much pride into his family and all the other things that matter in life as well. And that's the thing that needs to be celebrated, whether he got the riches or not. Maybe the CEO never picked up the phone and that was the end of that whole story. It's still a story worth telling. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., he said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as a Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. And now you know the rest of the story. Mike Slater, .locals.com, filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Hey, Team Buck, Mike Slater, San Diego, filling in for Buck Sexton. MikeSlater.locals.com is our website. Um, let, me, let me keep going on this. Because this is such an important theme. As, as universal basic income becomes more popular, uh, it's going to be pushed more and more nationwide. And we got a couple small cities like Stockton started a couple years ago. Obviously, some European cities. Uh, Oakland is now the first big city to do it. Goodness, Evanston, Illinois has a reparations program for black families, $25,000 a year that they can use for mortgage or home improvements or buying a house. Or whatever, right? Only black families. Right? So this is growing, and it's going to happen. Right? Unless, well, it's going to happen, and it's going to be more popular, unless we make a stand against it, particularly universal basic income, guaranteed minimum income. It is a bad thing. It's been an idea for a long time, and it's been a bad idea for a long time. The economics of it, yes, but the moral arguments is what conservatives really need to fully understand and articulate. The dignity of meaningful work. And again, it doesn't matter what the work is. I want to share the story of a guy named Dallas. He was at a gang. He was in a gang when he was 15, homeless by 18, spent decades homeless, and he just couldn't do it anymore. And he went to a, a charity job training program. And the very first job that he, ha that he had was called Push the Bucket. Push the Bucket. Dallas put on a blue uniform. And he pushed a bucket and mop up and down the filthy streets of New York City cleaning up trash. Now, a lot of people, a lot of progressives will look at that as demeaning and undignified. And it's offensive to have someone clean sidewalks like that. That's beneath them. Let me quote Dallas. Before long, I wasn't just picking trash off the streets. I was picking up values morals and principles. I was picking up self-esteem. 
And I would look, when I would look back at the block I just cleaned and see what a great job I'd done, I realized I picked up pride. He said the greatest day of his life, there was a big giant snowstorm in New York City and the whole city shut down, but he and his brothers in blue shoveled the sidewalks. And he said it was the most incredible day for him because he said just a few weeks before that, he was sleeping on the sidewalks, sleeping in garbage, people stepping over him, ignoring him. He was dead to the city. And he said, now here I am helping to bring this city back to life. That's what I mean by meaningful work. There's a uh, Cardinal Dolan. He tells the story of the renovating of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. And he said one day he was walking around inspecting the progress and he asked one of the people, he said, what are you doing? And one of the workers said, um, uh, you know, I'm doing the, whatever, some scaffolding work here, whatever. And he asked another guy, he said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm doing the rewiring here. And he asked a third guy, he said, oh, what are you doing? And the guy said, um, I'm rebuilding a cathedral. He just, he beamed, I'm rebuilding a cathedral. And one day I'll bring my grandkids here and show them what I help to do. That's what I mean by meaningful work. And, and progressives who are pushing these you know, guaranteed minimum income, they're, they're robbing people of this. And it's not just guaranteed minimum income. I mean, it's all, it's all welfare programs we currently have. It's just a failing economy. It's raising taxes and, and results in fewer jobs. I and mean, it's, all, it's all these government programs that are ruining the economy. They all have this effect. The Cardinal quotes Pope Francis. He says, and Pope Francis said, there's no worse material poverty than the poverty which prevents people from earning their bread and deprives them of the dignity of work. Jesus was a carpenter for the love of being. Adam and Eve, they worked the garden. God didn't have them just laying around doing nothing. They worked. But to the left, since Marxism, to the left, work is seen as drudgery and dehumanizing. It's a bad thing. So the progressive goal is to not work, to be free from work, to be liberated from work. And instead to seek pleasure, but pleasure is not the same as happiness. Actually, there's something I want to play in the next segment on that point. Pleasure and happiness are very different. Very different. Let me take a break here and we'll do that coming up next. But think about this. Think, think always, whenever there's a proposal from a government, we tend to think initially to the economic aspects of it. And that's good, right? You need to do that. But think of, think of that, like a, take a pause and think one step deeper. What's the moral implications of this? And also, instead of being tricked by the left of, oh, we're giving you this. There's no such thing as a free lunch. What are you also robbing of me? Oh, we're just giving this family $500 a month. We're just giving them this. We're just giving them this. All right, what are you also robbing of them? Robbing from them. People don't see that. They don't think of that until it's too late, until they've already taken it. <laughs> they have the thing they were told they were going to get, and they didn't even know that they had that thing taken at the same time. So think of the moral arguments for things and think of what's being taken when we're told we're being given. MikeSlater.Locals.com. Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Hey, Team Buck. Mike Slater, filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Thanks to Buck for, for having me back here. MikeSlater.Locals.com. Gosh, we've covered a ton today. Uh, kicked off the show, of course, talking about the press conference yesterday. Maybe we can do a little recap of that coming up as well. Um, I'll just give you the very, very short of what's going to happen. Right now, only far-right, fringe, crazy activists are questioning 
Joe Biden's mental acuity. And uh, how dare you, by the way? How dare you? That's so unpatriotic of you. You're emboldening our enemies by questioning the president's mental health. And then more mainstream conservatives are going to do it. And then uh, people on the far left are going to try to flank the president by questioning his mental acuity. And then, uh, again, you're going to be attacked by the media for doing so. How dare you? You're the worst. You're terrible. It's awful, blah, blah, blah. And then one day something's going to happen. And it's going to be so obvious to every single person, including the Democrats. And old Joe is going to be thrown out to pasture and he may not even know it. And one day Kamala will be sitting behind the resolute desk and that will be the end of Joe Biden. I don't know when it's going to be. could be pretty quick, but he ain't making it to 82. That's for sure. Uh, now, we told the story of Woodrow Wilson. In 1919, he had a terrible stroke. And for a year, he was still president. For a year, he was half his body was paralyzed. He couldn't focus for more than 60 seconds at a time. Uh, he couldn't speak properly, obviously. He could only see out of one eye. And for one year, the uh, media propped him up, weekend at Bernie style. And one guy in particular, Louis Seibold, and we read from the article, he wrote this article in the New York World, and it was all about how healthy uh, Woodrow Wilson was, and he was more alive than ever, and sprightly, and quick-witted, and could focus now, actually, on the things that really mattered. And, and like, right, total, like, oh, he's the best person ever. And it was completely made up. The whole story was completely made up. Every single word of it, it never happened. The interview never happened. They didn't have three-hour conversation. Woodrow Wilson couldn't, couldn't talk. He couldn't focus for 60 seconds. It was entirely written with, by the uh, chief of staff. The only people that saw Woodrow Wilson for a year was his doctor, his wife, and his chief of staff. For one year, this is 1920. They could pull that off in 1920, but can the media pull that off in 2021? I'm not as certain. But that guy who wrote that article, Louis Seibold, he won a Pulitzer Prize for it. So there's going to be a lot of journalists in America today who are going to be doing their best to prop up Joe Biden for as long as they can, and they're going to be encouraged by the fact that if they do a great job of it, they'll win a Pulitzer for it. Anyway, that was the first half hour of the show. Uh, I want to continue this point about work and the importance of work and fulfillment and happiness. There's a difference between pleasure and happiness that's super important. Let me build to it, though. First, I want to share this uh, quote from Thomas Williams. He says, of all the possible privileges to have, we hear about privilege all the time, right? White privilege, cis, cis male privilege, but all this stuff, right? all this privilege. He says, all the possible privileges to have, health, beauty, charisma, intelligence, athleticism, all of which respect no boundaries of race, ethnicity, religion, or class, have to be the most important by far. And of course, he's completely right. Of all the possible privileges to have, it's health, beauty, charisma, intelligence, athleticism. The extreme example of this is Jeremy Meeks. Do you remember this guy, Jeremy Meeks? The name may ring a bell. He was known as the hot felon. So this guy, uh, he was 18. He beat up a 16-year-old, served two years in prison uh, in California, joined the Crips. A year later, a year after he, was, uh, after he was picked out or got out of jail, he was swept up in a Stockton gang sweep, and his mugshot was put online. And he's a good-looking guy. And it went viral, and he went on to become a, a model. Vogue wrote an article. They called him the buff bad boy. At the time, he was married to a woman. They had, the woman had two other kids. They had a kid together. And he got out of jail, 
And he was with this woman still, but he was seen in the tabloids kissing the heiress of a British billionaire on a yacht in the Maldives. And they now have a two-year-old together. But they're not together anymore, but they have a two-year-old. They're co-parenting, which is very nice. So that is a very deep dive into the life of this person that you <laughs> did not know you needed today. But that's a gang-banging felon who no way would be able to get on a yacht with a billionaire heiress if he wasn't very, very ridiculously good-looking. That is beauty charisma. Or beauty privilege, I should say. Beauty privilege. But it's also true of other character traits, too. I forget the numbers exactly. You can, you can look them up. But it's um, tall, the height privilege. Height privilege. There, uh, it's something like... These are ballparks. Don't quote me on this. is ballpark. The average height of a guy is 5'9". And it's something like 2% of men are over 6'2". 2% of men are over 6'2". But it's like 40 or 50% of CEOs are over 6'2". And they've done, they've done the math on every inch of height. You end up earning like $10,000 more per year on average, right? Taller people do. Why? Well, because when you're taller, people have this perception that you're a better leader or that you have all these other characteristics of a leader uh, just because you're tall. You're promoted more often, right? Height privilege. There's also dressing nice privilege, right? Talking articulately privilege. We hired someone on my TV show once because he showed great enthusiasm for the opportunity. That's enthusiasm privilege. And if we would focus more on these things, then we could stop with the goofy race and ethnicity bias privilege conversation. Uh, okay, this is, uh, there's these YouTube videos and they're called like, uh, I don't know what they're like rich but not happy or something like that. And there's a bunch of these. And I love them because they just, they interview celebrities or they're clips of these celebrities who are um, miserable. And people think they have it all, and you're rich, and you're famous, and you have this and that, and you also have. I just I recently watched the Michael Jordan documentary, and there's this one scene where he's in the height of his you know fame, and he's sitting in the hotel room, and he can't go, he can't leave, he just wants pizza, he can't leave his hotel room, because he get mobbed by all these people, and he's miserable, he hates it, he hates his life, he's miserable. So people think they, they you know that if you get rich and famous, then you have it all, and it's everything you want, but it's not. There's a difference between pleasure and happiness. We keep seeking after pleasure. And we're missing the fulfillness, the, the fulfillingness of life that we should be seeking for instead. Anyway, here's just an example of these, these videos. And uh, this, the one at the end, the person at the end is Marilyn Monroe. Do you feel that you're happier right now than when you're broke or not really? Sometimes. Uh, it's a sometime thing. But I feel like the way that I have money kind of took away a lot of my happiness. Then what happened was, I then experienced the things that I was culturally indoctrinated to believe would be a kind of salvation. Fame, fortune, uh, attention, limitless uh, fellatio if required. <laughs> and yet, salvation did not come. I bought pleasure for so long. You can't buy happiness. You can buy pleasure, though. And a lot of people say, like, oh, money isn't happiness. Well, money can buy a boat, and a boat will make me 
and happy, that kind of thing. I think it can completely destroy a human being. And it, it, I got to a point where... Did it almost destroy you? Complete, yeah, it almost completely destroyed me. But I was lucky enough by the grace of God to have people that care about me enough sure. to be like, hey, Justin, back come in. on. Happiness is an emotional response to an outcome. If I win, I will be happy. If I don't, I won't. It's an if-then, cause and effect, quid pro quo, standard that we cannot sustain because we immediately raise it every time we attain it. Uh, do I feel happy in life? Um, um, let's see. Let's say I hope I'm finding happiness, but I'm not just generally happy. If I'm generally anything, I guess I'm generally miserable. <laughs> I don't know. Mm, so sad at the end, laughs it off. Uh, I'll put that video on our website, mikeslater.locals.com. Uh, I'll end with this. Candace Bushnell, she's written a bunch of books, uh, including the books that inspired Sex in the City, the TV show. And she's now in her 60s. And she's miserable. So she wrote these books about Carrie Bradshaw and uh, the, the quintessential independent woman. And forget about the patriarchy and forget about family. Forget about getting married. Just go uh, have sex and your career and all that stuff. And she took that path herself. And she's miserable. She has no family. She never considered where she'd be today when she was in her 20s and 30s because she was living the feminist dream. And being married and having kids would be a distraction from the true feminist meaning of life, and that is work. And she says she knows women in her 50s and 60s who are clubbing and dating younger men and like some divorced their husbands because they saw their 50s as their last chance to find a new husband and they're just miserable. And it's so sad because not only is she miserable, she's inspired so many other women to have that feminist mindset that work is paramount in life. And I'll never marry, I'll never have kids. And here she is finally admitting that that was not wise counsel. Be careful about these influences in life, these forces in life. Make sure your kids understand the difference between pleasure and happiness. I want to come back with uh, something that I can't believe this comes up every year. I'm so sick of this story. It comes up every year, and I can't believe the left still tries it. We'll do the very short of it next. MikeSlater.Locals.com. That's my website. Filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Hey, Team Buck. Mike Slater, San Diego. Filling in for Buck Sexton. I don't... Every year... <laughs> They keep doing that. They keep harping on this. I guess the other day was Women's Pay Day or Equal Pay Day or I don't know, something. And every year they parade up the women's soccer team. I don't know who thinks this is a good idea or that this messaging and marketing works from these people. I don't know. And they get up there and they talk about how unfair it is that the women's soccer team makes less money than the men's soccer team. How do people not see this yet? Here's Megan Rapino uh, at the White House. I'm a member of the LGBTQ community with pink hair. And where I come from, I could have only dreamed that I would be standing in the position I am today at the White House. I'm also a professional athlete, and I've helped along with all of my teammates uh, virtually here today, one teammate literally here today, uh, win four World Cup championships and four Olympic gold medals for the United States. And despite those wins, I've been devalued, I've been disrespected, and dismissed because I am a woman. And I've been told that I don't deserve any more than less because I am a woman. You see, despite 
all the wins, I'm still paid less than men who do the same job that I do. For each trophy, of which there are many, and for each win, for each tie, and for each time that we play, it's less. And I know there are millions of people who are marginalized by gender in the world and experience the same thing in their jobs. And I know that there are people who experience even more where the layers of discrimination continue to stack against them. And I and my teammates are here for them. We on the U.S. Women's National Team today are here because of them. Yeah, that's all I can take. Uh, is that the Okay, good. Uh, I love this. I am devalued, disrespected, and dismissed because I am a woman, says the millionaire soccer player while speaking with the president and first lady at the White House. It's the same as Meghan Markle a couple weeks ago saying, I have no voice. I just have no voice as she's doing an interview with Oprah in front of 100 million people. No voice. All right, so here's the deal, Megan. It's not that you deserve less money because you're a woman. It's that you deserve to make less money because your sport makes no money. Men's soccer is the most popular sport in the world. Women's soccer isn't. You may win more games against women's teams, but no one buys tickets to see them, and that's all that matters. Because here's the deal. This is tricky for people to understand. You, not for you to understand, for most people, you don't do the same job as men's soccer players. This is what the, this is their concern. They're like, they're like, oh, we do the same job. We both play soccer, and we're actually better. We win games. The men's soccer team doesn't win games. That's not the point. That's not your job. Your job is not to play soccer. You thought your job was to play soccer? I don't know. Your job is to generate revenue. Your job is to sell tickets so people buy hot dogs and soda in the stands. Your job is to generate revenue by having people watch your game so they can sell TV commercials. That's your job. You do it by playing soccer, but playing soccer is not your job. Your job is to generate revenue, and the men do a lot more of that thing. That is a very important difference. It's true for every job. I have a radio show. Buck has a radio show, right? I get paid less, and I can't say, oh, that's unfair. Buck and I both do the same job. No, you don't. I mean, oh, yeah, we do. We both have three-hour radio shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Buck generates more money for the company. Your job's not to talk for three hours. Your job's to generate revenue. It's true for everyone. But this is how narcissistic Megan Rapinoe is. She thinks her job is to play soccer. Also, you lost a game a couple years ago to a team of 15-year-old boys. Right? I love Biden the other day said, uh, women can do anything that men can do. That's not true. <laughs> That's definitely, definitely, most definitely not true. Nor would you want it to be true. That's what's weird about the progressive world as well. Nor would you want it. Actually, this ties into the third segment we had today about the pyramid. I don't have time to go into it now, but uh, Ali Best Stucky, who I love, has a great quote. She said, maybe I'm weird, but I just don't need this patronizing nonsense to feel great about being a woman. I'm so glad there are things men can do that I can't. I'm also pretty thrilled that I can do things men can't, like carrying and delivering babies. I don't want to be like a man. How ungrateful, too, can you be to be a woman in America today, the safest, most prosperous time to ever be alive? You play soccer for a living. You travel the world. You make a pretty good living out of it. Do you know there were times when Major League Baseball players needed a second job to make ends meet on the offseason? There's a baseball card of uh, 1973. And on the back is a cartoon of a baseball player pumping gas because in the offseason, this player pumped gas 
and installed air conditioners. That was 1973. Back then, the Major League Baseball minimum was $15,000. He needed a second job. Today, the minimum in the Major Leagues is $400,000. Right? So this is a new phenomenon, even, that men were paid any money. You're a woman today on the U.S. soccer team. You make $170,000 a year. I'd be pretty darn grateful for that. Team Buck, hope you have a wonderful weekend. MikeSlater.locals.com. We can hang out all weekend, and we'll uh, see you again. True story. Mike Slater, spread the word.